turn uh, early in the New Testament to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And though we will be looking at uh, Mark 4 and a lot of chapter 5, I'm just going to read the end of chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Hear God's word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So ends the reading of God's word. I think even though Augustus Toplady lived in a different century when he wrote the hymn, Now Why This Fear, and started with the words, Now Why This Fear and Unbelief, that would be very true for our day now as well. There is great fear. There is great fear that all of us deal with. We deal with different ages, whether children or teenagers or young adults or older adults. There are particular things that we fear, and it's also a time of unbelief where any trust in Christ, or as God, as he's taught in the Bible, is scoffed at. Though no alternative answers are given, people enjoy just scoffing and picking on things that they don't understand. If you struggle with fear, if you struggle with unbelief, then this is a passage you want to know. Mark's chapter 4 and 5 introduce us to several people who are all in desperate, fearful situations. They're in situations where all human resources have been exhausted. There's nothing anyone can do to help the people we're going to look at here for just a few moments. But we see how Jesus not only stills their fears, he causes a different kind of fear when they see him act. First, let's look at this passage that I just read and shows, that shows how Jesus has authority over danger. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. And they are on the Sea of Galilee. That's a large lake six by nine miles, and they are part of a small flotilla of other boats. They're not alone. And while they are there, a terrible storm blows down. Jesus is asleep, but the waves begin to breach the boat, and the, the men themselves, several of whom are professional fishermen, they've been around lots of storms, they know they are in a helpless situation. They know this lake like the back of their hands, and they recognize we are in trouble. And this is a perfect storm from which they cannot survive. And so they cry out, Master, don't you care that we perish? It's ironic since that's why he left heaven. It's the very fact that he did care that we perish. But they recognize they are helpless. Nothing can be done. They are doomed as far as their ability to help the situation. Now, there were three very good reasons why they should not have been afraid. First is, Jesus had said they are going to the other side. Second, he was with them, and they had previously seen his miraculous powers demonstrated in other situations. And third, they could see that even in the storm, Jesus was at peace. He was not panicking like they were. 
So what happens, to make a long story short, Jesus speaks to the storm, the storm disappears, and then he chides them saying, where is your faith? When will you believe? Haven't I worked on your behalf in the past? Why don't you believe? Why such unbelief? Now, I've only been in one hurricane, and I don't ever want to be in another. But I remember the night it was coming. We were in Florida in the panhandle there and staying at the beach. And the weather forecast was that it would probably arrive in the early morning hours. So at midnight, the night before, my brother-in-law and I went down to the, uh, to the beach and to the surf, and we were fishing. And the water was as calm as glass. There were no waves breaking or anything. But you could see the, the clouds above with the moon behind them really, really, really moving fast. All that changed at 4 a.m. the next morning when the rain sounded like rocks hitting the windows because the wind was so strong. But I can imagine, and that was fearful. Believe me, if you've been in a hurricane, that was fearful and it was nerve-wracking. But I can't imagine the opposite effect. If you were in a storm like that, and then suddenly everything went calm. The wind stopped, the waters recede back to where they're calm and no longer the waves. Well, that's what happened. And verse 40 tells us that though they had been afraid, verse 40 says, now they are filled with fear. Or as the one translation puts it, now they are terrified. They were afraid before, during the storm. Now they are more afraid after Jesus calms the storm. Why? Well, they're not fearful now for their lives. They're fearful because they recognize they are in the presence of one who is very different than they are. They are in the presence of one who has power even over danger, even over the weather. Jesus has authority over that. Next, and I did not read into chapter 5, trust me, just for the purpose of time. I'm already editing this thing in a major way. I've cut out two pages of introduction. <laughs> And so in chapter 5, let me just tell you what happens. You can read along. Trust me, I'm paraphrasing it. I'm not interjecting this into Scripture. They come, they land, they come across the sea, they land there, and they're met by a man who is in the worst possible condition. He lives among the tombs there by the sea. He howls and he screams in torment during the night. There's no social contact from others. He has no family that, with whom he can relate. He has no friends that come to see him. He is naked. He is foul. He is filthy. He is violent. He is uncontrollable. He has demonic supernatural strength so that he is able even to tear chains apart that they put on him to try to subdue him. He's able to break irons which are put on his feet. He is self-destructive. He is cutting himself with sharp stones. He is possessed by demons. In verse 6, he comes up to Jesus. And when Jesus asked his name, he says that his name is Legion, for we are many. We know in those days a Roman legion of soldiers had anywhere from 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. We don't know precisely however many demons were inside of this man, but they were organized and they were powerful and they were strong. And this man is a graphic picture of what Satan desires to make of all of us. Mark is wanting us to see that nothing can be done to help this man. There was no human resource with the condition this man was in that could remedy his condition. He is utterly helpless, just like the disciples had been in the boat. Now, in an amazing, in an amazing feat of power, Jesus 
banishes the demons. They rush into this nearby herd of swine who go down and they rush down this, this sharp cliff. They're drowning in the Sea of Galilee. The townspeople, the nearby townspeople come running. When they see that the man who was in such horrible condition is now clothed and seated and in control of himself, note verse 15. What does it say about them? Tell me. Anybody? They become frightened. What happened? Same response that the disciples had. What frightened them? The man had been frightening before. If he had burst through those doors, everyone in this room would be scared if we had seen a person in that condition. Now he's all right, but now they're really afraid because they recognize that what has taken place is beyond human ability. That this man, Jesus, is not just human. And they are in awe. So it is a reverential fear, but there is a terror behind it. Jesus has authority over demons. Now, moving ahead. In verses 21 to 34 of chapter 5, we're going to meet two other desperate people. First, we meet a man named Jairus. Jesus is in a crowd of people, and a man named Jairus comes up to him. And he asks him to go home, back to his house with him. Jesus now is in Capernaum. Capernaum was the home base of Jesus' ministry. It's on the northwest corner, northwest end of the Sea of Galilee. Jairus is a ruler in the synagogue. He's a ruler in the Jewish place of worship. Now, earlier in the Gospels, Jesus had only run into trouble and in debate and in controversy at the synagogue. And the synagogue leaders saw Jesus as a heretic and as a troublemaker. But Jairus has a different perspective probably because he's desperate, probably because he knows his daughter is so sick that no one can help her, and from what he's heard, this man, Jesus, might can help. So because his daughter is deathly ill, he asked Jesus to go with him to his house. Just like the disciples in the boat, they are desperate, they are helpless. Just like Legion, he is desperate, he is helpless. Now Jairus is the same, he is desperate, and he is helpless. Jesus agrees to go with him back to his house to try and help his daughter. Now, as they are going, one of the most amazing things in, in Scripture happens, one of the most amazing events. And it happens with a woman that we are never even told her name. But we know that she had a great need. She had a need for healing. She has been suffering for 12 years from some sort of bleeding element. Uh, it's not critical like Jairus' daughter. Uh, she was not at death's door, but it was a chronic, life-controlling problem. She is beyond all human ability, apparently, to help. And so she is desperate. Now, Mark wants us to see the contrast between these two people. Uh, because they could not have been more different, and yet both receive Christ's love and his mercy, and it shows us that his love and mercy is not reserved for just a certain group of people. If you've wandered in here today and you think, well, for one reason or another, Christ can't love me. He may love so-and-so over there, but he doesn't love me. Then you need this passage right here because this says otherwise. This woman is the exact opposite of Jairus. Think about it. Jairus is an important synagogue officer, respected, probably well-known. The woman is an anonymous Nobody. We aren't even told her name. But Jesus welcomes them both. Jairus probably was a man of influence and wealth. 
The woman had spent everything trying to get healing for her affliction, and now she's broke. Jairus is rich. Jairus is powerful. This woman is none of these things. She is ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, which means that her husband probably, has, whether he's dead or abandoned her, he's long gone. She is not allowed to go into the public place of worship. She has spent all of her resources, received no help, and she lets nothing stand in her way as she moves toward Jesus through the crowd. And she comes up to him in faith because she had heard others that had observed him. And though we don't know all the details, we know that somehow or another she got close enough to reach him, whether it was right at the ground, at the last possible thread of his robe, whether she touched him on the shoulder. It's an ironic passage in Scripture. Jesus immediately turns and says, Who touched me? And the disciples are like, Are you kidding? In this crowd, who didn't touch you? They're all pressed in against him. And, he, and then it says, Because of the power that had gone out of him, he realized someone had touched him, and he turns to her, and he speaks to her, and he speaks to her with great grace and with great gentleness, and he says, My daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, perhaps there are some in this room who need to hear the word, My daughter or my son. The world may regard you as nothing, and yet Jesus has high regard for you. Now, let me ask you a question I think we need to ask this day especially. Because all of us read things, we learn from certain cultural vantage points, certain time and place in our own education. Do you think your cultural background affects how you read this story in Mark chapter 5? Do you think, let me be more specific, do you think when women who live today in parts of the world where they have no power, like in Afghanistan or in Pakistan or in Iraq, do you think as they read this story that they see something we miss? I guarantee you they do. You know what they see? If they're a woman that lives, that person is a woman who lives in a culture that gives them no rights, we, they see that Jesus here causes the wealthy man to wait while he deals with this woman. She takes preeminence at this point in time in this crowd. He stops and he makes Jairus wait while he ministers to this unnamed woman. Jesus has authority over disease, so he has authority over weather and over danger and over demons and over disease. And last of all, we're going to see that he has authority over death. He arrives at Jairus' house. By now, the daughter is dead. And she's been dead long enough that there are mourners there. The scripture tells us they are there and there's nothing that can be done for this woman now. And Jesus tells Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. And some of you need to hear that. Your situation may not be near as dire as a, a pending death, but it's bad, whatever it may be. And he says, do not be afraid, only believe. Believe When he gets there, it's a pitiful sight. As customary in that part of the world that time, they're professional mourners. They were paid to wail loudly and to weep and to lead the family and mourners in lamentation. The girl is beyond being dead. That was no question. But Jesus says something that, that gains laughter and ridicule. He says, 
why are you mourning? Why are you doing this? She is sleeping. <laughs> what? Why does the Bible speak of believers' death as sleeping? Because when you go to sleep at night, it's a temporary state. You will wake up. You, assuming all goes well, you will wake up. Now, some of us may sleep where someone would think we're dead if we're in a deep sleep. But it's a temporary state. And so in the New Testament, death for the Christian is referred to as sleep because it's temporary. We are awaiting the return of the Lord. And this ought to be a great encouragement to us who have family and friends that have already gone before us in death. This is why Christians through the centuries, and if you've been to funerals that I've conducted, you've heard me say this probably many times, through the centuries it was in the early church that graveyards were changed to cemeteries. They changed the names. Because the word cemetery is a Christian term. It means sleeping place. And so rather than the pagan view, well, the graveyard is just, you know, the that's it, life is over, uh, annihilated or, or, or whatever. Christians buried their beloved ones and knew this is temporary. This body is here on a temporary, uh, in a temporary state. So Jesus says she's sleeping. And then he goes in and he takes her by the hand. And like the storm and like the way Jesus dealt with legion, he speaks a word. He spoke a word in chapter 4 and the storm stills. He speaks a word to the de to legion, and the demons flee from this man. Now he speaks a word in the language of the day. He says, little girl, arise. Little girl. In fact, literally, he said, little lamb. Little lamb, arise. He is the model of strength and authority and power and kindness and goodness and gentleness. What raises her up? It was Jesus' authority, the same authority that is still the storm, the same authority that had caused the demons to flee, the same authority that had healed the woman in the crowd. It is that same authority that now raises her up. Now, how should we relate to God then? Why would Augustus Top Lady talk about now why this fear and unbelief? And why is fear... Two types of fear are common in it that Mark's saying. You have to remember, and someone pointed it out to me, Mark was writing to the Romans. And if you were a Roman in that day, life looked pretty hopeless and you felt pretty helpless. And I thought, well, that's true in our day too. Hopeless and helpless. And so there was great fear. There was fear in general, and then there was fear about specifics. And so we hear that in each of these situations, people are afraid. After Jesus' work, they're even more afraid, but it's a different type of fear. Let me explain that. How do we relate to God in the flesh? There are two responses. First is to fear God. The disciples see him still the storm, and they are afraid. The Gerizim villagers are afraid. If you are not afraid... If you are not afraid of Jesus, then you have not seen him or you don't understand who he really is or maybe you just worship some kind of North American conception of him. When the woman is healed, she is afraid. And it's not fear like this person's going to get me or going to hurt me. We are speaking of reverential awe, of recognizing this is beyond me. I have no control over this. This God is not a dog on a leash for my whims, or I don't whistle and say, here, boy, and he comes. 
He's not like me. To meet God in the flesh is to have reverential respect. Now here is why that is so important. And whether you're a believer here or not, whether you would call yourself a Christian, this has application to you. It's so important because the world we live in is rotten and it's difficult and it's hard. In, any, in its best days, it's still hard. And you need a strong God. And you need a mighty God in this world because your adversaries are great. Just the adversaries of pain and suffering are great. And if you're going to make it in this world, then you need a real God, a big God, a strong God, a mighty God, an awesome God. You need a God who is worthy of worship. You need a God who is worthy of your prayers. You need a God who is worthy of your trust. Because often today, and even in some of our churches in our land, we present God as being responsible only for the good things that happen in life, only for the blessings, but having nothing to do or being powerless to help out in situations that are painful and hard. And we would say, well, those are the devil's doings. God has nothing to do with that. Well, I would just say, if you want to live in this world without fear, then that kind of weak, impotent, helpless God will not help. He will not do. You need a God who is mighty and powerful and a God who is sovereign over all things and who cares enough to say, little lamb, arise. Peace, be still to the storm. Having no fear does not mean that there are always happy endings. Most of the times they're not. Or that things always turn out the way that we hope they will. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It does not mean that we are in control, it does mean that he is in control, that he is wise and he is good and he is trustworthy, and therefore I put my trust in him. And with that, we can approach life then with boldness and with confidence and with courage. So we need fear. The second response, though, to Jesus is faith. Faith is the antidote to fear, and that's why Jesus asked the disciples, where's your faith? And I don't know who wrote it, Oh, I don't know who said it. I wrote this down long ago. <laughs> you may not care for this sermon, but listen to this statement. When the Creator is in the boat, you don't fear the creation. When the Creator is in the boat, you don't fear the creation. Jesus was saying, guys, put two and two together. If I am the Creator who can still the storm, then settle down and put your trust in me. Though it happened 24 years ago, I vividly remember soon after our family moved here being over at the health club across the street with some guys playing racquetball. And the television was on with CNN and it started talking about an earthquake that had happened in the little country of Armenia. And it ended up being not being a little earthquake, it was a huge earthquake. And by the, by the end, uh, over 50,000 people died as a result. It was an awful earthquake. But I remember watching for several days and reading about this, and there was a school that collapsed. And so the news broadcasters usually pick a few things to focus on, and they, they focused on these families that were there at the school trying to rescue their children that were buried in the rubble. And there was one particular man. After 24 hours of people had arrived, they had begun to dig with their hands. They are grieving parents. They dig and they dig, and after 24 hours, some gave up hope, some fell away, but not this one man. He stayed on all through the night. 
The next day, even though he had not stopped digging, somehow or another he got some heavier equipment there. He came back. He was there at the site. Finally, a hole was punched in a part of the rubble, and someone could be lowered down through it. And this man's they yelled, and they could hear voices, weak, but there nonetheless. And after more digging, this man's son was rescued along with several of his classmates. They were brought up. And when they emerged from the hole, the son was heard to stay, say, not in English, but in his language. He was heard to turn to some of the other rescued students and say, I told you guys not to cry. I told you not to worry. I told you my father was coming for us. My father said if I was ever in trouble, then, I would, then he would find me, that I should just hunker down and wait, and he would come for me. I knew it, Dad. I knew you would come. I tried to tell him. We are the people who have a father, and he's not a weak father, and he's not a father who fails away when he gets tired. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He is always on duty. And he avails himself of all his awesome power. He avails it to his beloved. Do you believe that? Don't be timid. Don't be afraid. Go forward. Fear God. Believe God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we only see portions of you and even from the scripture. We pray that you might give us a reverential awe of who you are a true understanding of, of who you are is displayed in the person of Christ and his work. And we pray that our trust would be in Jesus as our Redeemer, not in ourselves, not in our works, not in anything we can do, but only in his perfect life and in his death as a substitute on a cross where he took the punishment for our sin and he paid the full penalty for it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand now, if you will, and receive God's blessing, the benediction, and then we will sing together the doxology. The words are on the back of the worship folder. And now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.